Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Hello, welcome to the final, final session. Uh, we're going to be asking, will high-tech medicine save the NHS or cripple it financially? And we've got three distinguished speakers here uh, to tackle that question. Uh, but before we do, I'm just going to tell one little anecdote. I've been around in this game for a long time, and somewhere in the cellar of my house is a tattered copy of a magazine called World Medicine, which I worked for between 1980 and 1981. And one of the pieces that appeared in it <clears throat> was headlined, The NHS Computer Fiasco. <laughs> and sad to say, that headline has appeared with all too great frequency over the decades since. Uh, we still don't have a national NHS computer system. And as Stephen Dorrell remarked, you know, um, the fact that management and computer systems don't talk to each other is one of the greatest failings of the NHS. I happen to have had a sneak preview of what the three speakers are going to say this morning, which I wrote about in The Independent this morning. Uh, and I know that all of them are going to focus on this issue of information sharing, passing information around the system. As Stephen Dorrell remarked, passing information around the system is the biggest facilitator of change. So uh, it's a huge challenge. So let me introduce the speakers. Um, on my right, Professor Simon Loveston, who's Professor of Old Age Psychiatry at King's College London and Research Director of King's Health Partners. And he has a special research interest in Alzheimer's disease and producing tests, finding tests for Alzheimer's disease, which would uh, help the research challenge. And I know he takes some issue with a recent headline in The Independent uh, where we talked about drug companies withdrawing from Alzheimer's research uh, because it was too difficult and too costly. So perhaps we can come back to that. And then on my left, Derek Wyatt, who is uh, chair of Trinity Hospice and more relevantly for this meeting, a digital consultant. Uh, he set up Oxford in, uh, Internet Institute in 2000. He was an MP, uh, Labour MP from 1997 to 2010 and uh, an entrepreneur, I think, uh, seems to have had uh, many, worn many hats. And, um, um, also enjoys the accolade of being the first politician to have his own iPhone app. <laughs> so uh, perhaps we'll hear more about that. And then uh, on my extreme left, Richard Seabrook, Head of Business Development Technology Transfer at the Wellcome Trust. And he um, is interested in linking genetic information, I think this is what he's going to talk about, uh, with um, clinician management so that you can match the diagnosis of the disease to the best form of management of the patient with that disease and share the information so that you encourage good practice. So those are our three speakers. 
Um, I think we're going to go in the order as on the programme. So, um, Simon Loverstone, would you like to set off? So will, will technology uh, help or hinder? Let me say at the outset, I think that technology is absolutely essential. I think that my disease, the disease that I work on, uh, alone is set to cripple the NHS and other health systems without it. So dementia costs the UK something in the order of 20 to 25 billion pounds billion pounds per year at the moment and it's set to rise to extraordinary levels as we have an aging population if you think it's bad for us think about countries like China where the age structure is changing even more rapidly and because of the one child policy there are going to be relatively few young people supporting a, a very rapidly aging population so it's going to cripple not only um, health economies, it may actually cripple world economies. So we, we need some solutions, and I think that those solutions are, to a degree, technological. The other thing I just want to say is I do hope that we're not going to enter into a discussion of do we want technology or do we want non-technological solutions, because clearly we need both. It would be uh, rather simplistic, not to say juvenile, to um, pose these as two alternatives, they're complementary. So let me give you three quick examples in my own disease area where I think technology is going to be absolutely essential to help the care of people with dementia. First, biological technologies. We need treatments for Alzheimer's disease and other dementias, and we will not have treatments without some real advances in biological technologies. So we need new ways of finding drugs. We need different kinds of drugs, especially biological types of drugs. Second example, we can't even test the drugs. We can't do the clinical trials, let alone treat people, until we have what are called biomarkers or tests. So if we wait until people are affected, by the time you're affected with Alzheimer's disease, it is, frankly, too late. The disease of Alzheimer's disease starts perhaps 10, maybe even 20 years before the clinical onset, which is pretty depressing news for people like me in our 50s, but it's, it's the truth, and we need biomarkers in order to identify that very early disease. We need technology to help us find those biomarkers. Neuroimaging technology is advancing rapidly. Computing technology comes into this as well, as well as all sorts of other uh, engineering technologies for biomarkers. And the third area is clinical services. So clinical treatment to people today with dementia could be enhanced if we had better technologies. If we were able to link up uh, electronic medical records, Frankly, if we had electronic medical records in some of our NHS trusts, and then if we could use those for better patient care, we would be in a different place. We're beginning, for example, to use assistive technologies, remote sensors in patients' home, obviously with their permission, so that we can monitor when they leave the fridge door open or when they leave the house and don't come back. Very important with people with dementia. If we could link that to electronic medical records and then flag up to nurses and doctors when there was a patient at home who needed an intervention, a visit or a degree of care, we could keep people longer in their own home and provide better services today for people with dementia. So I think technologies 
are absolutely key to trying to solve the burden of disease, the financial burden of disease, in this one disease area. And I think that that is scalable and true actually right across uh, the medicine space. Very good, thank you. Um, uh, uh, I'm not entirely clear how uh, we're going to do that with, uh, in an era of austerity, uh, how it's going to save money, but perhaps we can come back to that. Um, next we have Richard Seabrook, um, who's going to talk about, uh, well, the same, I, uh, let me not say, let me not steal your thunder, okay. Richard. Uh, th thank you, Jeremy. Just, just to make a, a general observation, and it's been alluded to um, in, in the previous talks, and also uh, you know, Simon mentioned it, and that, that is this uh, issue of, of cost and how are we going to provide for the health service in the future. And you know, currently, if we look at the um, most well-resourced healthcare system in the world, which is the US system, uh, in which the annual expenditure is something like one and a half trillion dollars a year, according to the World Health Organization, the effectiveness of the healthcare delivery for the US population is ranked about number 20 or 25. So the solution isn't necessarily more finance and more resources. We need to be, we need to be a bit cleverer than that. We need to think about how we can best deploy not only technologies, but also some of the uh, softer, more holistic approaches that we've learned about today. And clearly, uh, with the aging population, the demographic uh, transition, and, and the growing world population, and actually we're living in a world which uh, the population is growing or expecting by 2050, the population to be about 9 billion. And currently, there are 17 million hospital beds in the world. So clearly, the modern healthcare system isn't, isn't going to service the, the health needs of the growing world population. So what we, what we do need is a social, cultural, and a political shift away from uh, waiting to, to fall ill and going to see our physician to get treated to what has been alluded to uh, earlier, and that is we've got to move to prevention, to lifestyle, to well-being, uh, and delay the onset of disease. And I be believe in you know, Simon's example of Alzheimer's, I think it's, it's talked about if the, if the disease is delayed five years, it makes an enormous difference to the economics. So uh, technology, uh, to give you some examples of technologies which are currently just beginning to be used, um, and I, I, I think there's a very, you know, they're making a difference, and there's a very good um, prospect that they're, they're going to be expanded in the way they use. I'm going to give two examples, uh, one which um, it com comes from the world of genetics, and one which comes, which uses genetic information, and one which uses physiological information, because in the future, individualized or personalized um, treatment isn't just going to rely on genetic information, but it's going to rely on, on physiological information as well. And there's, there's a project which uh, started out in the UK uh, called Decipher, um, and this uh, began at the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute, but importantly involves all 23 uh, regional genetic centers in the UK. And this project could probably have only started in the UK because of the NHS and the connectivity of our uh, genetic centres. And this, this, this project is essentially around uh, childhood developmental disorders. Uh, these are very difficult to um, treat disorders because of the variety of um, presentations by, by the patients. And the idea of this Decipher project is that you identify the genetic abnormality 
Um, and then physicians, through a, a database, the Decipher database, uh, physicians are able to um, enter the, the data about how they manage these patients so that collectively as a group they can learn from each other about what works and what doesn't work and it eliminates some of the trial and error issues of um, having to treat these, these hard to treat patients. Uh, and that, this, this network which initiated in the UK has now expanded to 200 centres globally so it, it has a large a database is growing all the time and it is about, as, as Jeremy said, it is about information sharing using you know, the genetic um, abnormality as the marker uh, and then uh, sharing the, the, the clinical management of, of the individual cases. Uh, an, an example using uh, physiological markers, uh, which, was, which I'm going to uh, choose an example from the US, um, and it was announced last week that one of these US healthcare managed organizations, uh, it's called Aetna, um, which, is, which manages um, the insurance claims for 37 million Americans, so just over half the size of the NHS, I guess, um, they have developed a relationship with a medical informatics company and uh, this medical informatics company will run a computer algorithm um, across um, all, all, all the patient data entries they have in, in the database and it's going to look for certain physiological markers such as um, blood pressure, waist size, <clears throat> uh, cholesterol, triglyceride, the usual types of uh, commonly available and fairly cheaply available markers and through this algor algorithm it's going to predict for the members of, of Aetna what their probability is that they are going to go on to develop a metabolic disorder such as obesity or um, diabetes and it will also recommend what the physician should be doing in order to prevent the progression of that disease. So that, that's an example of uh, not so much treating but actually anticipating a problem in the future for patients uh, and then trying to manage it so that the, the onset of disease is delayed. Thank you, Richard. Um, interesting, my, my experience, uh, interesting your comments about the Decipher project. Um, perhaps it has something to do with the rarity of the disease, but my um, experience of information being passed around the NHS about more common conditions, uh, when we talk about, for example, death rates, uh, which are being collected more today than they were a decade ago, but still are not attended to. Uh, the cardiac surgeons are certainly in the lead on this and they have modified their practice in response to the collection of death rates but other specialties are a long way behind and it's just how information actually translates into changed practice as I say it may be to do with the rarity of the condition that's working in the case of the Decipher project. Um, our third speaker Derek Wyatt um, um, a digital consultant and inventor, uh, sorry, um, the first MP with his own iPhone app. Thank you. Well, I did have the first uh, iPhone app in 2009, and for a nanosecond, I was third on the download chart on iTunes. I had 7,703 seconds, which is going it, because I'd never had that interest ever before as an MP. Uh, and we did it so that it was barcoded and it was postcoded, so only constituents could come and register. A very interesting. Anyway, that's by the by. Uh, what I want you to think about is your own experience you have currently in your family or if it's yourself with either your doctor, your doctor's surgery 
or if you're uh, slightly iller, have to go to hospital, what the connection is between your surgery, your doctor, your doctor, the consultant, the consultant and you, and so on. And I want to relate some of my own experiences, because unfortunately, I seem to be always ill. Uh, and I also want to ex uh, share, share something about somebody in my family who's had even worse experiences than me and how we've tried to struggle through the health service. Uh, and I've come to a, a completely different solution, which I also will, will conclude with. I would just say, though, that we're not doing so badly in terms of ICT projects in the health service. We only lost uh, £12.5 billion through the central NHS system that was stopped by the current government. Uh, but actually, in the 13 years under a Labour government, which I was a Labour MP, we wasted £70 billion of your money on failed ICT projects. So I'm slightly nervous about suggesting anything to do with government and ICT. Uh, I don't really see how we get past that particular issue, although I compliment uh, the Cabinet Office on trying to uh, under Francis Mort, but it is very difficult. So let us come back to your own experience and then maybe if you do have an iPhone or an iPad or a Galaxy or something with um, you know, uh, stuff on it, perhaps you just get it ready so I can just show you some things. So I've got mine here, okay, so I don't mind if you get yours out, yours is probably bigger than mine. But what I just want to show you quickly, and I know it's difficult for you to see this, but I'm sure you know what apps are. And I know if you flick, you know you've got hundreds of apps, or you haven't. Or you have, but you only look at them once, but you don't take them off and so on. But actually, if you go to your homepage, you'll find that you probably put smorgasbords, or you probably put the ones that you like the most into one. So on mine, I've got news, and I've got sport, and I've got culture, and I've got museums, and so on. So I can see at a, at, at, you know, at a stroke what's going on. So why can't the health service look like my iPad homepage? So just, just consider what I started this conversation with. I asked you to think about your own relationship with either your GP surgery, or if you've been, you know, had to go to hospital, that conversation you've had there. For, for instance, who owns your information? Do you own your prescriptions, or does the doctor own your prescriptions? And where are they? And why can't you access them? And by the way, why can't you access actually what you've had in your life? So why can't you see the record of your prescriptions, the dosages, and by the way, why can't you actually have some help? This is what they actually do. Does anyone actually read the leaflets in the drugs that are incomprehensible and in non-English, as it were? Uh, so what about just a single app for you? So what if you just had on your smorgasbord the diary or the calendar where you can book to see your doctor? Currently in my GP surgery, you can't do that. Moreover, if you're, if you're only vaguely ill, you know, maybe a bad back, maybe a headache, maybe a migraine, whatever it is, you can't see a doctor for between two and three weeks. If you're actually seriously ill, you can see them that day. Now, how they make that decision, I do not know. But you have to ring between 8 and 9 o'clock each morning. And when you ring between 8 and 9 o'clock, you can't get through. And at 9 o'clock, it stops that emergency service, and you can't go. So why, why can't we just share the doctors? And why can't we just book ourselves? And if that's a struggle for them, why can't they just give us a code? We'll put the code in. Then they can code us and see what we've got, and then come back and say, actually, you can see him now. There's a space. But actually, why can't you just see it? Now, when I, I, I suffer, I'm riddled with rheumatoid arthritis. I'm, I'm treated at St. George's Tutti. Uh, I cannot get an appointment after I've had an appointment. So I finished being seen, I had three monthly checkups, and they say, no, we're awfully sorry, we'll write to you. So they write to me two weeks before the appointment, 
and I can't make it, and therefore they cancel it. And I, it's crazy, it's nuts. This is today, this isn't yesterday, this isn't when my grandparents were alive, this is now. So why can't they? So if you see the smorgasbord that I'm designing, why can't you just have the diaries that you can book? Why can't you have your prescriptions so you've got a history of them? Why can't you have your family medical records so you can see what your children have or your grandparents have had and trace whether the DNA stuff is coming down so you can actually start to think about this a bit more seriously? Why can't you have your x-rays? How many people have gone to the doctors and they say, oh, we haven't got your x-rays back? I mean, you just send them digitally. Now, I do, to be fair, Kensington and Chelsea do do that. Bless them. But I can't see them. I have to pay £10. <laughs> this is nuts. Who, whose are they? I pay this NHS stamp. They're mine. But I have to pay £10. But you get the drift. Why can't you just, on a smorgasbord, have these small things that make up your health records as a family? Now, you can put them in the cloud. You can encrypt them so only the consultant and the doctor can see these things. The cost is, is tiny. And all I'm looking for is one hospital here who'd like to play with me. Because I think we can do this for half a million pounds. And it will revolutionise the way in which you own your records, see your charts, do your family histories, understand better what you've got than anything that any senior consultant or Secretary of State Health could do. Thank you. Very good. Thank you. Three... Uh provocative um, uh, contributions. I'm not sure we've quite addressed the, uh, the, the, the title of our session, whether a new technology is going to save healthcare or cripple it financially, but I know that Simon Loveston wants to come back straight away. So, oh, well, just sorry. because I'm so energised by this, I, I, what can I say? I agree. If you were a patient uh, of the Maudsley, you would now have access to your own personalised health record. It's in the cloud. You can access it through partner devices, these kind of things, your iPad. Um, there are apps on there, um, or beginning to be populated with apps that will enhance your mental health or are designed to enhance your mental health. And we absolutely uh, hope to expand this so that you can interact with the health service provider, the Maudsley, um, in a variety of different ways for better health. It's taken too long, I agree. It's just extraordinary that um, there are so few examples of this. But it is beginning to happen, and I think what we need to do is to identify those areas of best practice and, and learn from them. It's, um, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I, um, <laughs> Just on that point, um, Baroness Finlay referred to you know, the failure of the NHS to use email in place of letters. I was at a function last night talking to someone who was a local councillor who told me that they'd saved a significant sum of money by switching from half-inch wide sellotape rolls to quarter-inch wide sellotape rolls because of the volume of sellotape they used in that council. I'm not sure what they used it for. But, um, uh, and it makes you think that, you know, simply on postage, uh, apps such as you're talking about might save the NHS a considerable sum of money as well as improving efficiency. But I do slightly feel that, you know, in talk... In our talk about this, that uh, as Richard said, you know, we need a social and changing the point really, social and cultural shift from treatment to prevention. It reminds me of 
the debate right at the foundation of the NHS. I don't know whether you recall that at the time the NHS was founded, the thinking was that once you had a national system of health care, health demand would actually reduce that by providing everyone, keeping everyone healthy, there would be less demand. How wrong they were, that, that was proved wrong within two or three years of the founding of the NHS, and as we know, uh, its budget has increased year by year since. So we're in a sort of, it, it feels like Groundhog Day. We're back, <laughs> we're back there again, and we're trying to find ways of extracting, as Stephen Dorrell put it, 4% more bang from the existing bucks and I'm not really clear how um, the points you've made so far are going to help us do that, Richard. Well, um, I, I think the underlying question is, you know, because there are technologies around which are going to help us improve healthcare. And in fact, if we looked at the history of, you know, what has transformed healthcare over the last hundred years, it's it's pretty well technology that's that's done that, either drugs or medical devices. Uh, but can we afford this in the future? Um, and I. I think we can. Um, we've got much better at, um, it's still a long way to go, but we've got much better at looking at the health economic analysis um, of um, how technologies can make a difference. Uh, and, and, and the difficulty is, um, how do you measure the, you know, the, the payback? That, that's, that's always the difficulty, because you've got to make an upfront investment, and downstream, uh, you get the payback from that investment. So how you measure that, of course, varies depending on the technology and the disease. But we've got NICE, uh, which looks at this for um, pharmaceuticals. It's beginning to look at this area for, for devices and engineering technologies. And uh, you know, we can argue about the, how good NICE is or how, uh, how bad it is, but it has put the emphasis on better understanding of the payback and the health eco e economic analysis, which I think will help with the introduction of new technologies and avoid us uh, you know, cri crippling the healthcare system with, with costs. And in interestingly, looking at it from a research and development perspective, uh, which is where the Wellcome Trust comes from, I was surprised to be invited a couple of years ago to a very, very large global medical engineering company uh, to their European um, scientific advisory board meeting. And what really surprised, I mean, they, they're great scientists and engineers developing wonderful potential technologies. And what really surprised me was um, they didn't really know where to put their bets. Which ones should they invest in and which ones shouldn't they invest in because the product, uh, what, the product of these technologies is more information to help with clinical management. And they couldn't put a value on it because they don't know what the healthcare system's going to pay to have remote uh, imaging or to have vital signs measured by wireless technology. They don't know what the healthcare payers are going to pay for that. So there are a lot of really good technologies around which, because of this vagueness over the value to the healthcare system, the industry isn't actually investing in. I want to open this up to the floor, um, so get ready with your questions, but I think uh, Derek wants to come back on that. Well, um, I chair a hospice, Trinity Hospice in Clapham, and uh, we're a start-up business every year because uh, we spend the money. We have to raise nine million and we spend nine million. Uh, and every time somebody says to me, oh, you need another nurse, or we need this piece of technology, or we need another car for the home visit nurse, I say, will it improve the quality of care? If it does, I say, yes, let's go for it. And I don't really get that feeling about the NHS anymore. I don't feel they say, will this improve 
you know, you and me, will it? And if it does, what's the issue? I, I, I'm lost in this. But then I'm lost as a listening to thing about the Maudsley. Well, I'm thrilled you've got some of that. But how can we access it? So how can the citizen access what you're doing? Because you don't want the hospitals to keep replicating different systems. You want a best practice place that you can go to to download, as it were. So how do you tell other, other medi medi med uh, medical people or you know, people who are ill about what you're doing? Well, I think that that's a really, if you want me to, yeah. I think yeah, that's sorry, a really I mean, important yeah. question about dissemination. So, I mean, the answer is we try and disseminate through the usual routes, but we also disseminate as much as we can through meetings such as this and in lots of other ways. But I think also to, to, to recognise uh, what is happening through the R&D part of the NHS, the National Institute of Health Research, is spending actually quite substantial sums of money um, and then working in partnership with MRC and Wellcome Trust in order to um, do research in the NHS that simply wasn't done five years ago. And the electronic medical records actually, I think, is uh, an example where that may, over the next few years, you may see some really good outcomes. It's certainly on the agenda and there are finances committed to that. Okay. Um, Questions, please. Yes, in the front here. Right. Uh, James Carroll, Full Photo Medicine. Really to add to Richard's point, I mean, they don't know how they're going to save money or how they're going to financially contribute. But I bet there's another burden as well, which is the burden of inertia, really, actually, within the healthcare system, within doctors. Adoption is a problem. Uh, I'm involved in a technology you've seen on Star Trek. You know, when somebody gets injured, they go to sick bay, they aim a laser beam at them, they get healed instantly. Well, we make those, and we've got recommendations already from European Society for Medical Oncology and for various international and multinational services within oncology. Great systematic reviews in the Lancet, in the BMJ. We're in all the right places. The inertia to change is extraordinary. You tick all the boxes you think you're supposed to do. You do the you do the, the sort of the basic science work, prove mechanisms of action, you do RCTs, you publish them all over the world, you get involved in systematic reviews, you get involved in these great institutions that sort of boast to direct their experts, and still nothing. The inertia at the front line is extraordinary. Yeah. How do you thank get over that? Well, that's thank back you. to behaviour change. Mm. Yes, yeah. Well, can we come to that? But uh, a very interesting question. Uh, yes. Let's just take uh, a, a couple more and then we'll... Um... Thank you. That was an interesting point. I wonder if there's a correlation between the amount of research and investigation and tick-boxing being done and the inertia. Maybe one's the cause of the other. Um, you asked about the um, uh, why, why isn't best practice spread? What's the problems with dissemination? And immediately it makes me think that the problem is, that, is actually much more of a cultural one because you can see how you know, you want to implement something that you know works across a wide range of institutions, but at the same time you're working in a context that values personalization and paying attention to individual circumstances. And that, you can see in practice, is going to run counter to that because people are going to come up with all sorts of their own particular priorities. So you do have to sort of think, well, you know, what, what is the main essence of, of healthcare? Is it to produce good technological systems, or is it to deliver care? And if it's to deliver care, 
um, but you also want to cut costs, which is fair enough thing to do as a society. I think you need to think of, separate out the kind of technical areas where you can look at cost cutting, the postaging, the sellotape um, technology systems, but keep that very separate from the human aspect. So when you start talking about prevention, um, in today's, it's one thing to talk about prevent, you know, taking prevention if you're going to a known malaria hotspot, but prevention today here in Britain means intrusion, it can mean a lot of intrusion that, that causes resentment and it actually wastes money as well because you spend a lot of money on pamphlets telling people what they already know. Okay, thank you. And one more here. Gosh. Um, my name is Paul Marin, and uh, I'd like to concur with what you said. Uh, I'm involved with a small techno technology company here in the UK. Um, can you hear me? Uh, I'm involved with a small technology company here in the UK. Um, we collect data at the point of care, the bedside. Uh, we run algorithms to determine the risk of the patient, uh, and then we escalate care accordingly. Um, we've had huge success. 20 to 50% reductions in in-house, uh, in-hospital cardiac arrests, uh, significant reductions in mortality. Um, everybody seems to be quite positive on that information, but the uh, ability to spread the technology across the network of NHS trusts is very frustrating. And uh, there's this question about proving out the, you know, is the reduction in mortality related to the technology or is there something else happening in the hospital, et cetera. So there's a lot of that, but I think anecdotally, and we're having some studies done that are proving that out, uh, but it's been a, a, a very big success. And we want to also enable the people to um, give the, the patients the access to the, the, the data and so that their family members could, for example, see their observation charts when they're in hospital to, uh, to do this and get the personalized uh, healthcare involved. Um, but, but again, it's the adoption and, and the acceptability of, of Okay. Okay, very good. I, I think we'll just hold it there. Um, Richard, would you yeah. like to come back on that first and then yeah. Simon? Yeah, so um, this problem of um, having a technology but it's not necessarily adopted or taken up within the healthcare system. Um, on the positive side, it's a well-recognised problem. Uh, <laughs> and there is actually um, a Health Innovations Board which is there to advise the NHS on how it should try and deal with this issue. But, but it, it's, a, it's a human social issue uh, rather than a technological issue. And it, and it is about the changing the behaviour of professional, professionally qualified people who are doing a very important job. Um, and there's no, I don't, I don't think anybody's found a magic bullet answer to this. Um, just as, as, an, as an anecdote, I've been exposed to how um, some large US computer companies have been trying to get the NHS to adopt some of their technologies. Uh, and they, they take a very interesting approach, which is an anthropological approach. They actually put anthropologists into clinics to observe and study how decisions are made, who does what, so that they can make sure that their technology actually fits within, the, within that very, very specific context. I don't know if it works or not, but it's an approach that, that some companies are taking. Can, can I ask, sorry to ask you, uh, 
Listen, there's a thing called the internet, and uh, you can crowdsource, and you can develop Twitter and Facebook and all sorts of different pages. Do you mean that the NHS never uses any social networking to try and speed up the innovation? Decision-making and innovation. Are you aware of I, any of that? I, I don't know if the NHS does that. I mean, the NHS, you, you know, it, it likes evidence. It likes evidence which is, um, you know, from a reliable source. And, you know, the, you know they, they, they have mechanisms and processes for doing that. They have health technologies assessments uh, and evaluation criteria. It, and it's a robust and rigorous process. Um, I, I don't, I'm, I don't, I'm not aware that they use those social media for doing that. And I, I can give you an example of a, of a project which we're funding, which could transform the way um, type 1 diabetes is managed. And you know, the scientific evidence is very, very robust, but the, the, the persuading the clinicians to change the way they manage the insulin for these patients is very, very difficult because they've they're very, very, you know, they know their patients, they know how to manage the patients, and they're just really concerned about change and the impact that might have on the patient, unforeseen consequences and all of that sort of stuff. So, to some extent, you can understand the conservatism. Let, let uh, Simon, you want to it's, some, it's sometimes said that uh, if we really want to improve healthcare, we would just do what we know works. And actually, we're not terribly always very good at doing that. And it is unbelievably frustrating to those of us that work in the healthcare system that we're not more rapid in implementation of innovation. However, the counter case of that, it, you know, it is just difficult. It's difficult in any large organization. And you know, it's worth reflecting on just how large our organizations are. So the organization that we're in today part of the Academic Health Science Centre of King's has 25,000 employees. And that's just one. Um, so it is just difficult. I'll give you a specific example. Um, when you go to have your memory assessed, uh, if you're worried you have dementia, you have a brain scan. What actually happens is all that digital data gets converted to a picture and a very skilled person looks at it and what they usually say is, I'm not sure. And then you come back in a year's time to see if it's different or not. That year is unbelievably difficult for patients. And it's a year of waiting for a diagnosis. So we've invented algorithms and approaches that allow me as a clinician to uh, analyze all the data as data rather than a picture and help make an earlier diagnosis. But implementing that is not easy. And it's not just about dissemination. Of course, my colleagues around the country, they read papers, they know that this, but there's stuff to do. You need to change the radiologists, the machines. You need to have the pipes that transfer the data. You need to work out the economic models. And all of that stuff is now understood. There's a, there's a, 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 a branch of... Uh, academia that studies and, and acts on this called implementation science. So within King's we've now formed a group, we've brought together health economists, behaviour change experts and people who are interested in health services and how they run in something called the King's Implementation Science Group. And there's even better news because we're now working together in London across King's Health Partners, UCL Partners and Imperial Healthcare Partners with a cross-London implementation science group, specifically tasked with trying to identify innovations and help their adoption and implementation. 
And the innovation needn't necessarily, of course, be a technology innovation. It might be better nursing care, or it might be something to do with how we interact with um, allied health professionals interacting with patients, for example. But it's about the implementation of something that, where there is good evidence base for it. It's not difficult, but certainly in London, we're trying collectively across the capital to work together to do precisely what it is that makes you and I so frustrated that it doesn't happen now. Okay, thank you. Um, inertia to change is a huge problem. Uh, we do know one way, of course, to solve it, and that's with money. If, if you want GPs to monitor a patient's blood pressure, you just allocate a payment to it and the rates go sky high. So that's one way, but it, it's a, a difficult thing to do in the current climate because if you're going to um, incentivize with money uh, one behavior, you're going to have to take it from somewhere else. At the back there. Uh, Peter York, I want to ask about life expectancy and social determinism. <laughs> Professor Danny Dawling, the demographer says that if you get on the tube on the central line at Shepherd's Bush and you go to Holland Park, your life expectancy quintuples. You get another hundred years in just those couple of minutes. Now, Shepherd's Bush is quite ratty, but it's not Hackney with its multiple deprivations. So you might say, and people have said, that those polarizations are very extreme, intractably extreme, becoming more extreme. How will new technology impact on these things, or is it irrelevant to them? Okay, thank you. Um, I thought it was going east, actually, as I recall, but never mind. You lost, you lost uh, a year of life expectancy for every, every station on the Jubilee line, but never mind. <laughs> Um, yes, in the front here. Um, going back to the question about technology and healthcare, is the question really about what we measure? Because what Derek Wyatt talked about was so completely sensible and, and you know, just you can't argue with it. As somebody who's had two consecutive babies very close together at UCH, it took three appointments with a consultant uh, for the notes from the first birth oh, to come don't, up don't. to the meeting. So that's three wasted appointments, which I don't think anybody is measuring, let alone the time and inconvenience and the setup and the two-page letter to set up those three appointments before we actually had a set of notes where he could make a recommendation on the next birth. So if we don't measure any of that, how can you make a case for the investment that Derek Wyatt's talking about make sense? Okay, Good, thank you. Good question. Any more? Okay, let's, who'd like uh, to take this? Yes. Peter, I think at the moment, if you go, uh, if you go online, there are, I think, five apps uh, that can take your temperature uh, using the camera technology here. Uh, UCL has a similar system for diabetes, so you can take your own diabetes, you, it can then be text to your consultant, your consultant can look at it and text back. It also will text back, so if you have a child who's taking diabetes, which is the real issue because they don't take the drugs systematically, they tend to forget, it can buzz and send you a game and all sorts of things. So it, basically it's with sweets, but it's a text. And you can, do, you can do lots of things. And my guess is, is that although the health services will go on, 
the, the, the creative geniuses in the world will create more and more and more for you to pay for. So the real issue is that Shepherd's Bush won't have all of these, whereas Notting Hill will. So what do you do? Well, what India is doing is a slimline version of this at $30, and they're going to do 100 million of them. So you've got to, you've got to, so there is intervention that's possible. Uh, and that's how, you know, and there's a number of organizations that could do that here. But we seem to be in awe of Samsung and, uh, and Apple and unable to think for ourselves and do things that are more practical. Okay. I can't answer your question. I just sympathize with you. <laughs> I have to say, now, I, I, bore, I bore you to death now. I've had asthma for God knows how many years. I've been treated, I've saved my life at Bart, so I love the health service. I must have been a thousand times to, to see the consultants. I've never been seen on time. So when I was signed off about 10 years ago, I wrote them a charming poem saying, it's been a delight to be here. Is there some reason why nine of us always have the 10 o'clock appointment? And it's still the same. I don't understand how they do this thing, but the appointments is the key to unlocking the power. I think, I think probably we've all had experiences of uh, you know, missed appointments, uh, referral letters going missing, oh, and, uh, and, and the inability to monitor these things online. That, that is what would really help. I myself had a referral letter that went missing and had waited a month, phoned up, and only then discovered. Had I been able to monitor it online, I'd have known much sooner. So it's, it, it, it comes with it. Indeed. Indeed, indeed. It comes back to information sharing, doesn't it? And, uh, uh, and on Peter's point about the tube line, I, I think, I mean, it, it, we are, we're really getting into health inequalities there, and that is a huge issue. Um, how you tackle health inequalities? Do you um, incentivize GPs to go and work on the estates in Tower Hamlets um, in order to provide, you know, higher levels of care? I don't know. Um, uh, we've been trying to tackle this for decades and uh, health inequalities actually widen rather than uh, narrow. It's uh, an intractable problem. Um, more questions? Yes, one here. Um, I just, you know, it seems to me that we can't afford not to. And uh, if you remember before the days of the internet, France gave every household a Minitel machine because it saved on the paper publication and distribution of a telephone directory. I mean, every household, every citizen needs one of these um, devices. Um, you know, at public cost, it, it will be cheaper in the long run. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, what we're waiting for is, can I yes, go, sort go, of just, go. so I, I completely agree, we can't afford not to do it. So I just want to pick up on a, a thread from one of the earlier sessions um, when I think somebody asked Stephen Dorrell a question or, or made a comment about procurement. I, I think it was you, wasn't it? And I, I thought that he, um, he didn't really uh, take that on board as much as he should, perhaps, I, I, I might say, because I think procurement is actually really rather important. Not necessarily the most interesting thing in the world, but really desperately important when you have such a large organisation. And I think your specific point is absolutely right in relation to uh, information technology. One of the problems that we've got is a large amount of the technology, the information, the data that we've got that would enable some of the things that you want to happen is actually locked up in systems 
that are owned by somebody else. Not only do they own the system, it's not owned by the NHS, they own the data that's in it. How on earth did we get ourselves into this situation? So I think we must not allow that to happen again. I think the idea um, that we have one single system across the whole NHS is just fanciful. I don't have one single system in my own household. We have Blackberries, Apple, uh, Androids, PCs. How could we have single systems across the whole NHS? It's, It's ridiculous. So we need to have ways of connecting data, and for that, we need to be able to get into the guts of the machines and the software that hold our data. Thank you. I I, I wonder if we are dazzled by high-tech medicine, this concept of, you know, something new and shiny. Uh, I'm thinking of um, developments in surgery. Um, 20, 25 years ago, there was a revolution in surgery. Instead of slicing people open and sort of delving inside them and sorting them out, uh, thanks to new technology, we had the, uh, the uh, era of keyhole surgery with tiny incisions, instruments inserted into the abdomen, and you'd sort of fiddle around and sort it out, and much quicker recovery rates because they didn't have to recover from this vast uh, incision. Um, Of course, there were many teething problems. Some surgeons who were very good at open surgery were very bad at keyhole surgery and uh, wouldn't accept that they were very bad and needed retraining. So there were lots of teething problems. But that has been a huge advance. Now, we have a new era with the introduction of robots. Um, I went to see a prostate operation at the um, Royal Marsden. Uh, with one of these devices. I can tell you it's a pretty fearsome uh, thing to see. It's like stepping into War of the Worlds, this vast thing with sort of cantilevered um, arms all focusing on the poor patient who's sort of at an angle of 45 degrees with his bits sort of dangling in the midst of this and looking extremely vulnerable, a sort of crossed leg moment. Um, But... uh, Robotic surgery is being hailed as, you know, the new advance in surgery. And actually, the evidence isn't there. So far, there isn't any evidence that it improves outcomes or reduces side effects. And these, this technology costs millions. And in the States, and I'm sure it's going to come here, in the States, no self-respecting hospital can do without one of these devices because they just won't get the patients. They don't look as if they're up up to speed and up to the minute, and yet there is no evidence. And in an era of patient choice in the NHS, I can see exactly the same thing happening here. No self-respecting NHS trust will, be one, will want to be without one of these devices. And I just wonder, you know, as I say, whether we're dazzled by these things, these developments, and that we really need to take a much closer and harder-nosed look at how they contribute to health. Is, yeah. Would you like to come um, So, you know... The role I have at the Wellcome Trust, we look at, you know, people apply to us for us to fund development of these types of technologies, um, and one has to take a very, very close look at what is the medical need they're going to address, uh, what is the probability that this technology will actually 
come to fruition, it will actually become a product, uh, and ultimately, will it be used and will it make a difference? Um, the particular example you talk about, which is the Da Vinci robot, I think yeah, it's called, uh, I think the reason why that, the advantage of that to the healthcare system, as I understand it, is it incre it's quicker. So it uses up less operating theatre time, so the operating theatres can be used for other things. Right. I think right. that's the rationale. Yes. But it's also, it's the magnification, isn't it? They say they, they feel better about yeah. operating in a very confined space. Um, yes. Yes. Anyone else want to come back on that? Well, just to reiterate, really, it's really important that you have an evidence base and then that you apply the evidence base to implement the innovation, and that's what implementation science does. We're not always terribly good at doing it. Yes, it's a, it's a, the funny thing about surgery is that you don't... I mean, it's, it's not like introducing a new drug where it's subjected to multiple trials, phase one, phase two, phase three, costs millions or billions before it's released on the public. With surgical techniques, they tend to just, it, it depends on um, some um, gung-ho surgeon, quite frankly, some pioneer who's prepared to experiment and um, uh, spread it that way. It, doesn't, it isn't subjected to the same sort of trial, is it? Well, you wouldn't, of course, ask me to comment on my esteemed surgical colleagues, <laughs> but I recognize the caricature. Um, I, I think, though, you, the evidence base, we recognise, as a discipline in general, we recognise the importance of the evidence, uh, to have a good evidence base, and now evidence-based medicine is being applied across the board, and it's difficult to do in some areas. It's quite difficult to do in surgery. It's even more difficult to do in areas of holistic care, uh, and the alternative therapies and complementary therapies and some of the things we heard about earlier. Trying to find an evidence base for this is, is really rather difficult and for most parts, um, for those two, if you like, polar opposites within the health ser service, surgery and, and some holistic therapies, there is very little evidence base and that's a problem. The, uh, the, the, the Indian solution is quite interesting, uh, and we've kind of gone to look at it as a nation, or most of our politicians have and consultants, and reeled back and said no. But they, they say, look, cancer and heart are the two things, uh, so why don't we just have cancer and heart op uh, hospitals? So uh, a surgeon might do 10, 10 operations a day, because it's, it's like a factory, I've seen them there. Uh, and do we real from it because it's a manufacturing process? What do we, you know, what is it? At the end of the day, people are getting better. Uh, but would we, would we feel comfortable if there was only one heart hospital in the whole of the southeast, but it did, you know, 1,500 a day? Would you feel uncomfortable? You know, I'm just, listen, at the end, the technology's there. It's, and we can't go on paying the money, so it's obvious. Well, this is you know. the argument about uh, local versus specialist, isn't it? Yeah. Precisely. People want their local hospital, but we know that concentrating specialties in uh, um, bigger, um, more remote uh, centres uh, actually improves care. And the ambulance passes the local hospital. It may be a longer journey time, but you actually save lives that way. Any more questions? Yes, at the back there. Uh, it's been a very interesting uh, session. One of the things that I feel hasn't really been touched on is how these new technologies might actually save money in, in the long run. Um, and the second point I wanted to just perhaps 
throw out is, if you do introduce these high-tech technologies, what would be the criteria for prioritising them? I mean, obviously, there is an expectation that we are going down the path towards um, increasing technology in the NHS. Um, it is an expectation that the general public expect to have because, you see, you know, in parallel industries, for example, IMAP, uh, so the applications, etc. You know, you say, well, if you can do it in this session, in this in this area, why can't we have it in the healthcare sector? So there is almost an expectation from the general public that we need to have high-tech technologies. The question really is not about whether we have them or not, or whether they're going to financially cripple or not. It's about how do we manage the economic modelling around it. So, for example, with your example about surgery, if we are introducing these robots, what is the impact going to be on the economics of surgery overall. How much have those, the introduction of those robots in the US saved on other sort of associated costs with surgery? Uh, and we never seem to hear that um, about any introduction of new technology. We never understand what the um, benefits might potentially be. And actually also what happens with that saved money in the NHS? Where does it go? Thank you. I think that's a, a, a critical point, absolutely. In fact, I did wonder, looking at the title of this session, High Tech Health, whether it shouldn't be called Medium Tech Health or even Low Tech Health. I mean, you know, why do we focus on high tech? I'm not I know. really Can clear. I, anyway, Mr. Guy, I want to give you an alternative scenario. So uh, if you come, if you come uh, into, my, into Trinity Hospice, every, every room, a single bed, is a double bed. The couch is a double bed. The single chair is a single. If you want to stay, your family wants to stay, we'd like them to stay. We offer all sorts of therapies, uh, from art, music, massage. If you want to go to the pub, we'll take you to the pub. We want you to have the best life possible. That costs an enormous amount of money. It costs 800 pounds a bed per night. The health service want us to go down to 135 pounds a night. And that is not, you cannot treat people that way. And there is not even a discussion in public about this. And yet we've got longer people living longer, needing greater care. It's not possible. So actually, we take the other view. We take the view that what is the holistic approach to this person? How best can we service it? And how much money do we have to raise? So actually, we, it's not the technology always. Despite my love affair with technology. Okay. <laughs> How do we justify the cost of uh, high-tech innovations? So, I mean, first of all, providing good quality healthcare costs money. And in the UK, we spend rather less of our GDP on healthcare than many other similar uh, countries. So I think we just have to acknowledge that providing healthcare is expensive and it's not about to get cheaper. However, how do we justify it? And there's, I, I think we justify it, I, I think I've already said this, we justify it because if you take the example of dementia, if we don't do it, we're going to be facing rising costs. That's true in lots of areas of chronic diseases as well. If you take diabetes and you look at the size of our young people these days, we're going to be facing a huge increase in cost by uh, providing care for people with the sequelae or consequences of diabetes in 10 or 20 years' time. And therein lies the problem. I think it, it's very easy, actually, to justify the cost of implementation uh, of innovation, whether that be high technology or, or low technology. It's very easy to justify that if you have a suitably long time frame. 
and the time frame in chronic diseases where most of the costs within the health services are are 10 to 20 years in length and that is not the time frame of politics and ultimately you know this becomes a political decision about how you want to invest in R&D and then implementation um, and then rollout of technologies and I think we have a problem and the problem is how do we do things that cost money in the short term in order to save what is going to become a crisis in the long term and although I'm very enthusiastic for innovation of all sorts I have to say that one stumps me so do you think if the police commissioners which are going to be elected are reasonably successful that you need to have health medical commissioners that are elected? It's a really interesting question. <coughs> um, I, I tell you what I'm absolutely certain on, and what I'm absolutely certain on is that we do need some element um, of direction within the NHS that is not just at a single hospital level um, or at a central Department of Health level. So I was very interested in what Stephen Dorrell was saying because I think what he was saying is that we have an evolving health service where the organogram is not going to look fantastically different to the organogram that went before. And if he's right about that, then I find that very reassuring because I, I think if you take a city like London, you do need some oversight of the health economy within London. Otherwise, we can't make change. Now, whether that oversight of the health economy in units such as London is an elected health commissioner or whether it's an appointed health commissioner, I think I'd have to just answer that's above my pay grade. <laughs> um, uh, I, I'm just anxious that we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that innovation can also be very simple as well as very complex. I mean involving very simple measures as well as uh, fancy new equipment. Um, a, a particular hobby horse of mine is the surgical checklist. Simply one sheet of paper, simply tick boxes. It's being implemented in hospitals around the world now, across Britain. Um, you simply, it's simply saying, is this the right patient? Is this the right limb? Uh, has, he been, has he or she been given uh, antibiotics prior to surgery and afterwards have we counted all the instruments and made sure they're all accounted for that sort of absolutely basic thing and in the pilot study it cut death rates by a third and complication rates by a half now that is a staggering result staggering result for a very simple no-cost innovation and Mayday Hospital in Croydon recently reported that they had had six patients in the last couple of years with retained swabs after operations. So they were stitched up with swabs still inside them, went back to the ward, developed an infection, had to be returned to the operating theatre, reopened, the swab taken out. Uh, extra suffering for the patient, needless to say, and extra cost for the health service. I, I think that's indefensible in, in, you know, when these checklists are supposed to be used throughout the NHS for every operation. But, but that's a simple innovation that is no cost and uh, not only improves care but saves costs. And I just wonder, you know, I think 
it would be nice if we could think about that as well as about Absolutely. fancy new gizmos and um, Da Vinci robots that are costing a million quid. Any last questions before we break for lunch? I'm sure you're all starving and thirsty. I think we'll wrap it up there then. Thank you very much to my speakers. Yes, just very briefly, I'd like to thank Jeremy and our panellists and of course all of the speakers this morning who I'm sure you'll agree we've been very lucky to hear from today. Um, lunch awaits you just behind those screens. I'd like to thank Booper, the Independent and King's College London who've all been instrumental in putting together today with us. Um, we will be sending you the links to the podcast of all the sessions today and also tweeting them at our at EI Digest account, so do look out for those. Thank you all for coming um, and enjoy lunch. Thank you.